And as you're being seated this morning, would you please turn with me in your copy of God's Word, in whatever format you have it, to the book of 1 John, towards the end of the Bible. And we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. So I mentioned last week, the next series we're going to is a series on Proverbs, looking at the, the skill and art of living godly in this world. But in the meantime, uh, just looking at a couple subjects and topics that are kind of on the front burner of my heart, things I've been thinking about. And one of them is the whole matter surrounding one's assurance of their salvation. And it's one I have been thinking about. It's one where I've, I've talked to numerous people, even, even some of you, and it's something I know you wrestle with. So I thought, I'm going to think about this, and I want to preach about this. So that's where we are uh, this week and even next week. I tried to fit it all in one, but it didn't, it didn't fit. So 1 John 2, thinking about the matter of one's assurance, one's confidence of their salvation. So here's what John says to the church. 1 John 2, 1 to 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to hear and understand where our assurance is ultimately grounded. Lord, I pray especially that in this moment in hearing this, those of us who wrestle with this question, who struggle with it deeply, who feel like assurance slips through our fingers and is out of our grasp, would know that our assurance is not ultimately in us, but in Christ. Help us to hear and know that we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during elementary school recess, I was taught the authoritative and definitive way to discover that if you had a crush on someone, you could know that they also had a crush on you. This is a very complex game, so allow me to try and explain it. So the fifth grade, I was taught, if you have a crush on someone, you're not allowed to approach them directly because if you do, they could reject you, they could laugh at you, they could tell the whole class about you, and you would die of embarrassment on the spot. (laughs) So the stakes were very, very high in this game. Now, the way to do it was to find a flower on the school playground, preferably a daisy, because it has to have petals on it. The flower has to have petals. And when you find that flower with petals, you can't count the petals ahead of time. That's cheating, and you'll die on the spot as well. So with flower with petals in hands, you begin to pluck them. And the first one you pluck, you have to say, she loves me. Then the second one, you have to say, she loves me not. And you have to keep repeating it until you get to the very last petal of that flower. And wherever you land on that last petal, either she loves me or she loves me not, that determines the fate of your history and the rest of your life. So if you end by saying she loves me, that means in fifth grade you have found your soulmate and you need to look no further. But if you end on she loves me not, 
all hope is lost and you need to go back to playing four square or tetherball or whatever you're playing before. Now, it's a silly game and it has no corresponding basis in reality, I found out. You know, I, I was gonna joke and say, you know, some people wonder how did, how did Andrew get Ashley to marry him? And I said, I have the, the pedal, the pedal, the last pedal to prove it. No, th- this game has no corresponding basis to reality, but this game does provide a very childish illustration of a very real yearning and desire of the human heart. We want to know. We want to have assurance and confidence that the the thing or the person that we have an interest in or affection for reciprocates and shares that interest and affection. So think about when you're trying out for a sports team or when you're auditioning for a play, there's this angst and uneasiness as you wait to hear if you made the team or if you got the role. But then when you finally see your name on that roster, when you see your name next to that role, isn't there joy in the heart and a skip in the step again? Or when you're applying for that position or promotion and you're going through the interview process, you can't stand not knowing. There's angst as you wait, it keeps you up at night. It ruins your appetite. But when you get that phone call that you got that job or you got that promotion, Right, You can eat like a king again and you can sleep like a baby because you now know, you have confidence and assurance of something. Well, when it comes to this longing of the heart to know confidently, to, to rest assuredly, it is never more significant. The stakes and consequences are never more higher than when it comes to our relationship with God and our saving interest in Christ Jesus. Now, perhaps the phrase of scripture that most resonates with you, that you most identify with, is when that father of the demon-possessed son comes to Jesus in Mark 9 and says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because perhaps you say to yourself at times, Lord, I believe that you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But Lord, help my unbelief that this applies to me. Or maybe you say, Lord, I believe that you cancel the debt of sin, that you cleanse the stain of sin, but Lord, help my unbelief because I'm not sure that applies to me. Or maybe you say, Lord, I believe that Jesus is the savior of my sin, but Lord, help my unbelief because my belief is so fickle and it's so frail that I struggle to believe that my belief is genuine. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We, We utter that phrase in a myriad of different ways. And all of this deals with the matter of one's assurance of salvation. Someone has defined the whole issue of assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is our kind of subjective grasp of our objective standing in Christ. It's it's our subjective sense of where we stand with God in Christ. And so here's the question I want to ask and try to answer in this message. How do you get to the place where you have a joyful and genuine grasp that Jesus loves me, this I know. How do you come to the place where you can joyfully hold on to the truth, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. How do you come to that place? Well, we're gonna go to 1 John to seek to answer that question in a number of ways. Now, why 1 John? Why did I choose 1 John to address this question? Because John wrote his letter to address this question. Turn 
to the very last chapter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Why did John write this letter? Well, we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. He tells us exactly why he wrote this letter. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's writing to a church made up from John's perspective of believers and he wants them to know that their belief is genuine, authentic, so that they would have a joyful grasp that they have eternal life, that they know Christ. So that's why John writes this letter. So now what are some of the answers that John gives to the question, how can we have assurance? How can we grow in a genuine, joyful grasp of our assurance? Well, first answer. Assurance of salvation is founded on the solid rock of Christ's character and completed work. Assurance of salvation is first and foremost established and founded on the solid rock of Jesus' character and completed work. So think of assurance of salvation like the construction of a house. The first, most crucial, most fundamental step of building a home is what? It's laying the right foundation, right? A house without a foundation or a house with a faulty foundation is a house that is destined to start cracking and crumbling. In fact, if a home inspector is coming to a house and there's cracks in the drywall, one of the first things they look at is the foundation, right? To construct a solid, beautiful house of assurance, we have to ensure that we're building in the right place on the right foundation. So in, in Jesus' day, in the ancient world, there were two foundations that you could build a house on. One was very easy, but very precarious. And one was very difficult, but very solid and stable. Rock or sand. You probably know maybe from the Sermon on the Mount, the wise man builds his house upon the rock, the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Building on sand was cheap and easy, yet no digging required. You know, it was, it was very quick. You could put the home up in a moment, but it made the home very vulnerable to all the elements outside, wind and rain and the weather. Building on rock was more difficult because you had, you had to dig away all the sand to get to that rock, and then you had to chisel away at the rock to make sure it's flat. But once you did that, you had a solid, durable home, despite whatever elements would come your way. So establishing your assurance on your feelings or your ability to self-evaluate, what we might call introspection, looking inward, is like building the house of assurance on sand. Now, there's a place for feelings. There's a place for self-examination and introspection. But that place is not the foundation. That's not the establishment, the grounds for assurance. Why is that the case? Well, think about feelings. Feelings are by nature subjective. They are by nature very fickle, very flighty. They change like the weather here in South Florida, right? What's the weather like in South Florida? 15, you know, at one moment, it is bright and sunny, no cloud in the sky. And then 15 minutes later, after you go to grab your beach stuff, you go outside and it is raining cats and dogs. And then you go inside to put your beach stuff away and you come back outside, what's happened? It's all clear, sunny and hot and humid again. Our feelings are like they just change and they ebb and flow and it's sunny and it's cloudy and it's partly sunny and then it's mostly cloudy. Feelings are a terrible place 
to ground and establish your assurance of salvation. Which is why there's this old prayer that says this, Lord, help me to honor you by believing before I feel. For great is the sin of making feeling the grounds of my faith. What's well, a dangerous place to ground faith. Self-evaluation or introspection is also a very faulty foundation because we are not always the best examiners of ourselves. We're not objective in doing it because one day we could be having what we determine to be a good week. And so we think he loves me. And then next week we determine that we've had a bad week. And so what we do, he loves me not. And what happens is every week you're just flip-flopping based on how well you think you did or how well you might have done or how well you didn't do. And what happens is it creates an assurance whiplash, right? Have you ever driven in a manual car with someone who does not know how to operate a stick shift? That's what it's like basing your assurance on your self-evaluation of yourself. It's this constant whiplash going back and forth. You're shifting in gears. You're stalling all over the place. There's a place for that, but it's not the foundation. So what is the foundation? Well, John tells us in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, he tells us that the, the solid rock of assurance is the heart of Christ and the completed work of Christ, the character of Christ, what he is toward us, and what he has done for us. Look at 1 John 2, 1 to 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there are many diverse reasons why a person at any given moment might struggle with the assurance of their salvation, why why their subjective grasp of their objective salvation might feel very, very flimsy and very fragile. Some of it is they, they struggle with the past, the shame from the past, and it just kind of plays over their mind over and over again. It's hard to overcome that. For others, it could be temperament and disposition. For others, it could be they got a terrible night of sleep that night, and they're just not in the right frame of mind. But chief among the reasons why we might struggle with assurance of salvation, John points out to us in verse 1, if anyone does sin. Now, this is not a theoretical hypothetical. This is a going-to-happen hypothetical. John, John is not saying, hey, guys, one day one of you might sin at some point. He's saying, no, no, you are going to sin. This is a definite hypothetical. And when you do, where are you going to look for your assurance? Where are you going to look for your hope? Because, right, we have those moments. We say, how can I be a Christian when? And you fill in the blank. How can I be a Christian when I keep giving into this temptation? When I keep being this selfish? or those I say I love, or this angry, or this judgmental, or this slothful, or this filled with anxiety, and the list can go on and on and on. What do we do in those moments? Well, John says, in those moments, we need to take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on Jesus, our advocate, Jesus, our righteousness, and Jesus, our propitiation. Martin Luther famously said, When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. That's what John is pointing us to. So as our advocate, what does that mean? It means that Jesus comes to our aid, he stands by our side, and he lays out the only defense that can be given for our pardon. 
It's, it's kind of this legal term that comes from someone who's been charged with a crime, needs someone to come to their aid, and Jesus is that one who comes. And he comes with the only case that can get us no condemnation, not guilty. Exhibit A of his defense is his own righteousness. That's why John says, we have an advocate with the Father, not just any advocate, but Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so in heaven, Jesus stands up for us and says, I am his righteousness. Take my life of perfect obedience. Take my life of faithfulness to the law without a fault and apply it to his account. And take whatever is charged to his account and apply it to mine. Jesus comes to our defense. He looks at us and our sin, our shortcoming, our despair. And he says, he's with me. What's mine is his. That's what it means to have an advocate. Perhaps a further illustration will help to understand the significance of having Jesus as our advocate. The first time I went to Turtle Creek Golf Club, I was a bit nervous in the parking lot because in and of myself, I had absolutely no business being there. It's a private golf course, and I have paid this much money toward a membership at that golf course. Now, some people get invited there based on their reputation and their skill and notoriety in the golf world. I can assure you I was not there on such an invitation. And perhaps I I could have snuck in if I had a nice sports car, like some of the other cars in the parking lot. But my 97 Toyota 4Runner with the the sun-damaged paint job and the the peeling of uh, the tinted windows was a dead giveaway. And I know it was a dead giveaway because when the, the cart guy came to my vehicle, the first question he asked, he didn't say hi, he didn't say welcome. First question in a very suspicious tone was, are you here golfing with somebody? <laughs> he knew, he knew that I was not there on my own merits, right? But then I used a magical phrase that changed everything. I said, I'm here with Bob Brunges, <laughs> right? He took my clubs from me, he put them in the cart, and he essentially said to me, the world of Turtle Creek Golf Club is your oyster. Have fun. I had no business being there on my own, but I had an advocate. I had one whose payment for the membership, whose privileges because of his membership, whose rights as a member and its reputation as a member were applied to me because he said I was coming. And so I'm telling you, if you ever want to go to Turtle Creek Golf Club, just say you're with Bob Brunges and you'll <laughs> have a good time. But I had an advocate. That's why I could be there. Now, that's just a faint illustration of what I mean when we say Jesus is our advocate. We mean that despite our disqualification, despite our sense of despair and doubt, Jesus' payment, his privileges, his rights, his reputation, because of all that, is ours because he says he's with me. I am his righteousness. Now, exhibit B of Jesus' defense for us as our advocate, not just his righteousness, but it's his propitiation. Now, it's a big word, and it's a very outdated word, but it is one of those words, when you understand its meaning, you unlock some very precious gospel treasures. Now, the best way to understand propitiation, what it's signifying and meaning, is to think about the cup that was handed to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane and he starts to stumble 
and stagger and sweat drops of blood. We see him in a state that we have not seen him before in the Gospels. He is bold and courageous. He is in charge. He is commanding the wind and the waves and the storm and the demons and sin. And he comes in the garden and he's filled to the point of feeling as if he's going to die. He's sweating drops of blood. He's stumbling, he's staggering, and he's pleading with his father. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Why does Jesus stumble and sweat and pray? He does because he knows Isaiah 51, 17. He knows that the cup that the father holds out to him in the garden of Gethsemane is the cup of God's wrath, filled to overflowing with God's holy, just, vehement wrath towards sin. Not his sin, but your sin and my sin. And he knows that the cup is being held out to him because the Father is asking him to drink it for us. It's your cup and my cup, but it's handed to him. And so what does Jesus do? Takes it. Not my will, but yours be done. Essentially saying, I will take the cup and I will drink it. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and he cries out from the cross, it is finished. What he means in part is that that cup that was handed to him that he staggered over in the garden is empty. He drank the dregs of it, the very bottom of it. Not a single drop is left in that cup, meaning he bore every ounce of every single just demand that was due for your sin and my sin, such that there is no justice to be paid. There's no wrath left to be absorbed. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because it is finished. So now we are showered with an everlasting love, everlasting kindness that we could never have earned. We have a different cup that we get to hold, right? When we take the Lord's cup, we hold the cup of blessing, the cup of Christ's kindness to us. And so when you're tempted, because you're looking within yourself and thinking, I haven't done enough. I just haven't done enough. Well, then we look to Christ and what does he remind us? It is finished. Or when you're doubting because you keep thinking, you know, I keep doing that over and over again. Why can't I overcome that? And you look to Christ and what does he remind you? It is finished. Or when you think, I've had a pretty bad week. It's the, the, the score is not good this week. If I can just make it through this week and do better, then I can come before him and show my face again. And then what inevitably happens is you come back three weeks later because it took you three weeks to have one good week. And then what does he remind you when you look up to him? It was and is and will always be finished. It is finished. That is the basis. Not my love to you, O Lord, but your love to me is the ground of our assurance. Jesus loves me, this I know, for his character and completed work tell me so. That is the solid rock of our assurance. Now, the second place we go to, to to bolster and gain a genuine joyful assurance is the promises of God. Assurance of salvation is fueled by the unfailing promises of God. When the the sailboat of assurance feels like it's just sitting in the middle of the lake, it's not going anywhere, what puts wind in the sails? It is looking to the promises of God. Now, during Christian's journey to the celestial city, 
in John Bunyan's masterful book, Pilgrim's Progress, which I recommend you all read regularly, one of the places that Christian visits unintentionally, there's places he goes to intentionally, and there's places he ends up that he didn't want to be at in the first place. One of those places is called Doubting Castle, which is occupied by the terrifying and menacing giant despair. Christian ended up in Doubting Castle because he was supposed to be on the narrow road, but he decided, you know what, I think I know a shortcut. Let me, let me go a different way. Even when Hopeful told him, evangelists told us to stay on this road, Christian's like, no, 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 I, I know a better way. So Christian wanders off the narrow path that he was supposed to stay on, and he ends up in Doubting Castle. And now that series of events is meant to signify that one of the causes of our struggle with assurance is when we, we turn away from God's command. When we say, you know what? I think I know a better way. I think, I think I'm gonna do things my way. We think we know what's best, what's most enjoyable, what's most right for us. And what we find in those seasons is that high levels of disobedience do not equal high levels of assurance. That's just a formula that just never works out. Usually it's the opposite. High levels of disobedience, straying and wandering, usually are accompanied by low levels of assurance. Hence, Christian ends up in Doubting Castle. And in those moments, just like us, we feel like we're locked in Doubting Castle, wondering how we're ever going to get out. Well, listen to how, in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and Hopeful are freed from Doubting Castle. Around midnight, Christian and Hopeful began to pray and continued till almost the break of day. Shortly before the sun came up, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in excited speech. He said, what a fool I am to lie in this stinking dungeon when I might instead walk free. I have a key in my chest pocket called promise that I believe will unlock any door in Doubting Castle. Hopeful responded, that is good news, good brother. Take it out and let's try it. So Christian pulled out of his chest pocket the key of promise and began trying to unlock the dungeon door that they were in. The door's bolts, as he turned the key, came loose and the door flew open with ease. Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then Christian went to the outer door that leads into the castle yard. And with his key, he opened this door also. After that, he went to the iron gate, for that also had to be opened. Though that lock was very hard, sometimes the promises don't always work right away. It's not a magic formula. The key still opened it after some time. Then they thrust open the gate to make a speedy escape. But that gate, as it opened, made a loud creaking noise that awakened giant despair. He rose quickly to pursue his prisoners, but just then... He suffered another of his fits, which made his limbs fail and ended his pursuit. Then Christian Hopeful pressed on eagerly and came to the king's highway where they were safe because they were out of giant despair's jurisdiction. And what Bunny is illustrating there is that the promises of God, these golden keys that he has put throughout his word, are the key to unlocking the doors when we find ourselves trapped in Doubting Castle. And Bunyan is very intentional to show that the key of promise was found in Christian's chest pocket. By way of allegory, Bunyan is encouraging us to hide God's promises in our hearts through memorization and meditation. He's saying, take each golden key of promise that you find in scripture, memorize it, meditate on it, so that it is stored in your chest pocket, in your heart, so that when you feel as if you are locked behind one of Doubting Castle's doors, you have a key easy to access, ready to unlock the right door with the right key. 
So, so what does that look like? Well, here's some examples. Before you stands a door in Doubting Castle with a sign that reads, you've messed up again. Surely this time you've exhausted God's forgiveness. So you take out the key of promise of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You take that promise where God stakes the reputation of his own character on forgiving you, and you say, God, I'm confessing my sin. And your word says, you must forgive me. If you're just, you will forgive me. If God doesn't forgive one who confesses their sin, he's not God because it says he is just and faithful. That's a promise that unlocks that door. Imagine you're standing before another door and the sign reads, he's not near you anymore. You've drifted too far away from him, so he's drifted away from you. You're not welcome in his presence anymore. So you take out the key of promise of Hebrews 13:5, For God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those who draw near to him, he will draw near to them. James 4. Or maybe another door reads this. There's too many things wrong with you. You have too little ability. You'll never change. You'll never overcome this. Well, the key of Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Or 1 John 3.2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then the door opens. Or another door, which reads, the problem's too big, the burden's too heavy, the future is too scary. So you reach in and you take out Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, will he not also with him graciously give us all things that we need? Or door five, one that probably many of you resonate with. And the door it reads, your faith is too frail. Your hold of Christ is too weak. You're destined to stumble and fall away. You take out the key of John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And my father who has given them eternal life is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of his hand. There's two hands holding you, not you holding him, two hands holding you, the son's hand and the father's hand. Which is why we need to remember this prayer from one of these old Puritans. He said, oh Lord, forgive me for a faith that rests upon my hold on Christ rather than on Christ alone. I've been so helped and encouraged by this quote from B.B. Warfield. He said this about where our assurance lies, where our hope lies. He said, the saving power of faith resides not in itself, but on the almighty Savior on whom it rests. It's not that there's something wonderful and magical about faith that God says, hey, I like that. I like that. I'm going to grant that some salvation. I hope it stays that strong. No. It is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ who saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively, not in the act of faith, or the attitude of faith, or the nature of faith, or the quality and measurement of faith on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, but in the object of faith, in Christ. 
assurance of salvation is fueled by the promises of God, which we lay hold of by faith because it brings us to the object of saving faith, Jesus Christ. So Jesus loves me, this I know, for his promises tell me so. Now what I wanted to go over this week, but I'm not going to do it, we're going to do it next week, is one of the other places in scripture that talks about assurance, First John here, is it says assurance of salvation is authenticated or verified by the tests of scripture. So we're going to look at that one next week. But looking at these two objective grounds, the, these solid grounds of salvation and assurance, how can we, we apply this so that we can grow in a genuine, joyful grasp of assurance? Just a couple points. One, identify areas of sin and shortcoming in your life that particularly make you struggle with assurance. So what is it for you when you say, how can I be a Christian when I blank? What's, what, what fills in that blank for you makes you struggle with assurance? Okay. And then meditate on how Christ is your advocate and your righteousness in that particular area with that particular thing. Because Jesus Christ is our advocate, the righteous one, not just generically, but specifically and personally for every single one of the things we struggle with that makes us unrighteous. A vague, generalized view of Christ's righteousness doesn't go very far in helping you grasp assurance joyfully and genuinely. But understanding the, see if I can say this, the specificity and personalization of Christ's righteousness goes a long way to helping you grasp the joyful nature of assurance. So for me, how can I be a Christian when my blank is, is anger? How can I be a Christian when I have so little restraint over my emotional thermostat? I mean, it gets turned up pretty quick, pretty fast sometimes. And some of you could say, he's got five kids, I understand. I'm, I'm surprised he still has a little bit of hair left. But nevertheless, it should not be a struggle I have, and yet it is one I have. So where do I go in those moments? Well, I go to Christ. Think of Jesus and his emotional perfection. Jesus was infinitely and omnipotently patient with his disciples and with the crowds and with those who were crucifying him. In those moments, he was exercising the omnipotent restraint of patience to hold back the emotional waterfall that could have come from him. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, Lord, how long will I have to remain with these in their unbelief? Lord, how long will they continue to waver? He is patient. He is patient. And even when he does respond in anger, it is a rightly administered, rightly aimed anger. When he gets zealous for his father's house, which is being just abused and misused, it's not because Jesus was perturbed that you know, someone took the remote from him and he couldn't find it, like I am sometimes. He was zealous for his father's honor. It was nothing about self. It was about his father. And it was aimed and measured properly. And then I think about how on the cross, my record of debt in its specific nature, Andrew Jacobson's anger on August 31st was nailed to the cross. He bore my sins, not generically, but specifically in his body on the tree so that I might die to sin and live to righteousness. That helps me joyfully grasp my assurance of salvation. So identify areas of sin and shortcoming, that you particularly struggle with and think how Jesus particularly is your advocate in those areas. Secondly, if you are one who resonates with Christians' experience in Doubting Castle, 
identify for you what is written on those doors that you feel locked behind in Doubting's Castle. Doubting Castle. What does that door say that you feel like, I, I can't get through this door? It's locked. I'm stuck here in despair. And gather up as many golden keys of promise that you can find in Scripture and have a keychain full of them that you memorize and meditate on so that when you are behind those doors, you have something near your heart with which you can unlock it. And remember, sometimes it's an iron gate, and sometimes it takes a while to work that key. But do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap assurance. Here's the third one. And this one is is interpersonal rather than just personal. (laughs) Encourage others with where you see evidences of God's grace in their life. Encourage others with where you see the Spirit producing fruit in them. And encourage others with where you see Christ conforming their character to his. Here's why this is, I think, important to the issue of assurance. Oftentimes, our struggles with assurance, our discouragement, our despondency, our doubt, are due in fact to the are due in part to the fact that we get stuck within ourselves. We're kind, of, we're kind of trapped in this state of introspection and we can't look beyond ourselves. And what we see, we don't like. And so it kind of just is this snowball effect. Well, just as Christian needed Hopeful in Doubting's Castle to encourage him, we need the encouragement of one another. We need, when we're stuck in this introspective place, we need someone to come and sometimes just hit us over the head with reality. And other times to come with that, that sweet, kind word of encouragement that says, oh, there really is a pulse. There really is life. I, I might not be able to see it, but they, they can. Sometimes our assurance of salvation comes because someone else comes to us and gives us hope like Hopeful did for Christian. So what is the basis? The solid foundation of our assurance? It is the solid rock of Christ's character and completed work. And it's the unfailing promises of God. Now your, your assignment for next week, should you choose to accept it, is, is to read First John. Read for, it takes just 12 minutes, 12 to 15 minutes. And what we're going to look at next week, so we have the objective grounds of assurance, but we also have the subjective tests of assurance. And read through First John and ask yourself, what are the tests that First John gives to authenticate and verify the genuineness of one's assurance? And that's what we'll look at next week. Well, let's pray now.